I'm not going to try to be someone I'm not. And I think that's where sometimes I do have to work harder. If I'm going to be myself, then I have to still like figure out how I can understand the politics, present and communicate in a way that's still effective. But I do have to find my path and I have to bring people along with me. And that is tough, but I've made a decision that I'm not negotiating on who I am. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So this next guest and I met at an event this year, which we both paneled on. And I knew she was a badass based on her, you know, role. But you never know how badass people are until you really dig into their work, aka Google.com. And man, this girl has had quite a career. Swati Sharma is editor-in-chief of Vox the premier explanatory journalism network. And don't worry, she explains what explanatory journalism means. She oversees the site's editorial vision as the network reaches wider audiences in more places and in more formats than ever before. And guys, she has spent her career at legacy news organizations, you know, such as The Atlantic, Washington Post, The Boston Globe, I'm sure you've heard of some of them. She has overseen digital coverage through a pandemic, a racial reckoning, and two years of Trump's presidency, along with a historic election. Sharma grew up in the Bay Area, loves to travel, and loves Bollywood, as you will hear in the interview. She also happened to graduate summa cum laude from Northeastern University. Look, just from that alone, you know she's a badass. This woman was meant to write and tell stories, and I absolutely loved our conversation. I hope you enjoy my interview with Swati Sharma. I know we met at the I Am Impact Summit and Gala, and for some reason I felt like I have known you forever, and I was like, have we met before? I know we haven't, and we have mutual friends, obviously, but right away, I was like, I feel like I know all you guys. I don't know why. It just felt like it felt like home. I was like, I we've definitely emailed. We've definitely talked. And, you know, Bob now, one of my favorite people. So, yeah, we went to high school together. I told her that I was going to meet up with you. She was like, what? And I was like, I, I'm pretty sure Swati and I have paneled together in our last birth because this is just too, yeah, I know. too familiar. I don't know what. It's good. It's it's amazing. Okay. So let's just dive in because I I can talk to you forever. One day we'll have drinks whenever I get up back up to New York or DC or I know you go back and forth. Okay, Swati, you are editor-in-chief of Vox, of Vox Media. In the research I was doing the past few days, Wikipedia happens to be one of them. I was trying to read about Vox and, and kind of break down, Vox Media, I should say, and break down the company And maybe you can help me out. So this is what I got. So Vox Media owns The Verge, Vox, obviously, SB Nation, Eater, Polygon, and Curbed. And then, of course, a bunch of online publications such as New York, which then has various websites. So a lot going on, a lot of branches, a lot of tree branches. My question to you as editor-in-chief of Vox, how closely do you work with all these editorial brands. And like, if you had to describe your relationship with all of them, are you guys like siblings, long lost cousins, talk once a year? How does that work? 
Um, I would say that we are cousins. I think we call each other cousins. I'm also very close to my cousins in my personal life. So maybe that's saying something. But no, I often, just last night, I had drinks with Nilay Patel at the EIC of The Verge. And I often look to them for advice, for guidance. One of our reporters on Vox just did a big story for New York Mag, and that was Rebecca Jennings. And so we often have partnerships. We like to work together. We like to have a really good synergy, if that's the right word to use. But there is a real um, sense of partnership, and we're all in this together. Vox Media is such a great place to work because of that. And I think my background has been in newspapers like the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and they were huge. And there were so many different sections and departments. And in some ways, Vox Media feels like that sometimes, where I do have the ability to go talk to Lindsay Peoples, who's so brilliant. And I have the ability to talk to, like I mentioned, Nilay, or I can talk you know, to the Eater EIC and just use them to help me think through ideas. And, and I, I feel so lucky and grateful to have that. So yeah, we're, we're cousins. And Big happy family. Cousins are the best. Like they're like your best friends, basically. Really quickly, I just I just realized because you know I know Nishat. I met, I've met her a couple of times through podcast movement, and then is it Nilay or Nilai? Nilai. There are a handful of South Asian leaders at Vox Media, right? How many? How many would you say? Nilai, Nishat, myself. I'm trying to think if there are there are probably others. But yeah, we're tight. I mean, we have a good, even on Vox, on my team, my managing editor, South Asian, Nisha Chithal. You know, we have our style and standards head, Tanya Pai, our head of video at Vox, Mona Lalani. So we have a good amount of South Asian representation. There are many more. I'm sure there's a ton. Okay. And so Vox itself was launched in 2014. It's a news website that employs, from what I read online, explanatory journalism. So could you explain explanatory journalism and how is it different from any other type of journalism and why do we need it? I'll start with maybe explaining what Vox's reason of existing is. And it gets into why I joined Vox. So explanatory journalism, what we're trying to do is we really believe that People from all backgrounds, no matter where they enter a story, should really be able to understand what's happening and why it matters. And we believe context, nuance, and really providing our audience with clarity matters more than anything. And so that's our goal here. Whether you're an expert or you're someone outside of the bubble and you want to understand what's happening, Vox is the place where you can go. Now, I think a lot of places are doing explainers now, something that Vox spearheaded, and now you see explainers everywhere, which is great. And it's something we're actually proud of, we don't shy away from, but we still believe in the explanatory brand. And I think for me, the reason I care about it so, so much is I believe everyone should have a reason for why they're in their career. And for me, it is, I really believe that ignorance is the root of a lot of problems in our society. And the way to challenge that is through knowledge and information. And I think about this a lot for the Brown community I grew up in, in Fremont, California. And I think about the need for information and the need for people to understand the full context of, of what's happening. And I believe Vox, the way that we do our journalism can reach those people. 
I also believe that another big part of our explanatory journalism is that we try to cover the topics that maybe you won't find elsewhere. But, you know, animal welfare, biodiversity, housing are all things that actually are things that people do care about. And we do focus on them. But we we can take the most complex topic and somehow make it approachable. And that is what we do. And I think if there are two words that we really do live by, it's intellectual rigor and approachability. And we really try to have those in our journalism across video, audio, and text. Would you... I don't view this terminology negative. Would you say explanatory journalism is kind of like talking or writing in layman's terms for everyone? I would say it's to have like approachable, more conversational language. And the thing is, explainers, as we call them on our on our site, you know, those are the stories that we have. They're, it's not all what we do, but if you're just focusing on that part, we have these stories that provide the context of the top, catch you up with what's happening. Then you have subheads, so it's easy to lead, read and follow and skim if you want to. And we have a similar version of that on Today Explained, our, our podcast. Um, also by one of our hosts, South Asian, Sean Ramisram. He's excellent. That's where we do bring that approachable sensibility and we do really try to be have accessible information. But it's also the types of stories we do kind of push this a little forward. So, for example, when there's a chaotic moment and you want clarity, you come to Vox. We will give you the clarity. We'll catch you up. We'll tell you why this matters. We can't cover everything, but on, on some of the big topics, we have something. What we also do is give you the context and the background. And, you know, I think with the coverage on the Israel-Hamas war, we are we are really giving you the history, the context. We're explaining, like, this is what Hamas is. We did that on text and on audio. We are telling you the history of some of these regions. We are telling you what's happening in Israel right now. We are really trying to build people along and we're hearing from people is that this is the kind of context and history that they need to understand what's happening. We also, one of my favorite types of stories we do is we write what's hidden in plain sight. So maybe there's something happening and you don't know really understanding like how you connect it to maybe something that is happening that you don't quite see or know. So one of my favorite examples of this is before inflation has become such a big story, two of our reporters really went in and said, okay, everything is getting more expensive. Is it? What is this about? And that's a hidden in plain sight story. There are experts on this topic and they saw something other people weren't seeing. Other types of stories we do are connecting something to the larger stakes, which I really, really like. And it's writing about maybe there's a small moment that's happening, but we put it in a larger context as to what it all means. So there's a bunch of different types of ways we do explanatory journalism. So yes, at the basis, it is taking a complex topic and explaining it in a very approachable way, but it it gets deeper than that when you start getting to the types of stories we cover. So obviously in order for all this to happen, you have to have the team of writers and the storytellers, uh, editorial. When you're looking at people to hire, people that, that are working on your team, Do you need to train them in order for them to learn how to write and explain stuff this way? Or does this come naturally to a lot of your team when they come in? I think there's always a learning curve, but we're a mission-driven organization. We believe that 
people want information and we don't have a paywall. So we believe that free information matters right now. There are so so few places that have that. And I've really only worked at places that have paywalls. So I completely respect that. But Vox is different in that we, we, we try to hire people who believe in our mission of providing approachable, accessible information to people who maybe don't want to pay for it. What I love about Vox is that sometimes I feel like change makers, influential people don't read or listen or watch what really the people outside the bubble are consuming. I want Vox to stay in that bridge. Like people who are influential, who are change makers will also want to consume and we are consuming what people outside the bubble are. And that's such a beautiful place for us to be. And so we try to hire people who really take that mission to heart and really want that to be our reality. That's amazing because I know we've talked and as a news website, you guys provide context, history, clarity, nuance, you mentioned whenever it's appropriate. And obviously nowadays everyone uses the term fake news, like it's like milk every day. It's just something that it's thrown out so much. So I'm not sure how complicated it is, but can you explain y'all's fact fact checking process and how you avoid getting called out for in quotes fake news? I mean, no matter what I we ask. do, that will always <laughs> I figure. <laughs> I figure. <laughs> but no, we have a very rigorous process. I mean, not every story has like a designated fact checker, at least on text on video and audio, it's a little different of a process because it's a different type of of rhythm on those teams. So there is a robust fact-checking process on text. We have writers, editors, and a copy desk where we really go through each piece is seen by multiple people. We check what we're doing. We check our facts. And we really, again, that, that rigor I referred to really is a huge part of what we do. And one writer doesn't write three stories a day. And that matters to us because then we can really make sure that our quality and standards are very high. You know, we take the trust that people put in us very seriously. And and I'll also add that outside of even fact-checking, sometimes we don't have all the answers. One of our writers, Dylan Matthews, just kind of, I, I believe he predicted that inflation wouldn't be so bad. And then he went back and wrote a piece about I was wrong about that. And I love that. Our audience loves that too, because I think it puts so much trust in what we're doing. And we also don't shy away from the fact that we don't have all the answers. Sometimes we don't, and we don't shy away from that. And we, it's part of our newsroom culture that we say that in our stories, that we don't have the answer to this. And I think some News organizations are hesitant to do that, and that totally understand that too. But for us, because we're kind of in a conversation with our audience all the time, it's something we really care about. Honesty. It's, it's, a, it's a shocking concept, isn't it? <laughs> Obviously, you're, you are a brown woman and you're running Vox. Two-part question on that. First, who is your audience? And then what... Emphasis do you put on including minorities? Do you even know the percentage of your audience who is minority? And how does that play a role in your stories? The audience really goes back to what I was talking about before. And this is still aspirational, but we're we're getting there. And it's we're actually probably here, but I still want to be better and better and better and stronger on this front. But it is some of those policymakers read us. And so do people outside 
maybe the traditional bubbles read us. And that is something, and and I should not just say read, listen to us, watch us. That is a really important part of one. I think it's one of Vox's strengths that we are strong in audio, video, text. But on top of that, we see that even on video, it's our international audience that is really the, the strong audience there. And that's really important to us. And on audio and text, we just have a very diverse range of people listening to us from, you know, all over the country. And that's that's amazing. Again, I, I think being that place where we are the bridge between the influential group and the people outside the bubble really matters to me because I also think that what's happened in the last 10 years or even longer is that gatekeeping has been challenged so much that often the influential people are no longer the people who are just the policymakers. It's maybe a much younger audience. It is activists who listen to us. It is school teachers who listen to us. Again, it's still policymakers who listen to us. And we're not doing our job if the audience isn't diverse and it isn't from all regions of the of the country and hopefully the, the world as well. So that's kind of how we think about our audience and who we're reaching. And in terms of being a brown woman, it absolutely does play a role. I don't believe that race, identity, gender are just something that you add in a story when you're covering like a hate crime. I believe that it's always a part of the story. And one thing that I've really enforced in my newsroom is no matter what your background is, you can't only talk to like diverse sources when you're covering a diverse topic. You really have to make that a regular part of what you do. And even if you're not from the community, you still have to take race seriously. You have to take identity seriously. And that is something I've really enforced because I think as people of color, we don't just think about, we're always thinking of that when we think about the world. We I always take people's different experiences into account. And I want to see that in our journalism. And it's something that I've been really pushing for in our work. And I'm really proud of where we've moved on that. And I'm really proud of people really challenging themselves to cover the stories in a very inclusive way. I got to ask this because, you know, you're like my 133rd episode now. I've talked to a lot of South Asian female leaders who are in these amazing roles, positions, all obviously deserved and A lot of them have told me during the interview that when they first got their roles, it was natural for them to feel like they didn't deserve it. Imposter syndrome, blah, 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 blah. What about you? When you got this role where you're like, holy shit. (laughs) I mean, I still say that to myself. I think that's absolutely a reality. And I've just, here's how I'll answer this question. I think when I was coming up, I've always been proud of the fact that I was an outsider. I was in these very like white spaces. I was like, okay, how am how am I going to find my path? How am I going to get the job done? It wasn't always about like growing and getting the next job, but it's like, how am I actually successful? Especially because, you know, as I shared, I did have a mission on as to why I was in journalism. And so I used my outsider status to really learn the place and not take it for granted. And I learned how it worked. I learned who makes the decisions and I learned and figured out how to get things done. I'm proud of that and proud of, you know, my, my journey. And I think a part of that imposter syndrome comes from that because you, 
that outsider feeling doesn't go away, even when you get to this role. And so now I've kind of devoted myself to how can I make Vox a place where people know what their path is, where they know what's next, where they do have a sense of where they don't have to work as hard as I did to find the answers. It's it's not perfect. It's all a work in progress, but that's what I aspire to have that kind of environment. And hopefully that spreads in the industry. And I do, of course, still face that imposter syndrome, but I think I have something that I believe is like, I call it my personal board of directors. And it's people who are like my peers or people who are younger than me or people who are much more experienced, who I rely on to talk to in moments of stress or in moments of when I need support or when I'm trying to make a decision. And that is the kind of thing that keeps me going. And I just, I don't shy away from the imposter syndrome. I have it. I have to constantly check it and then just keep going and doing the work. God, seriously, why? Why does it keep coming back to us? Again, talking to to all you guys, and no one's really said this, but I feel like as a South Asian and a female, I feel like we in these roles have to, no matter what anyone says, have to work harder than our white male peers, to put it blatantly. Do you agree with that? Do you think that you are putting in that extra time and effort just to be able to get the same result as someone who may be not brown and not female? I think what I'll say is that sometimes, and this is this is just the nature of things, I think sometimes what I've tried to do always is I am a brown woman. I really like makeup. I'm obsessed with Bollywood. That's the writing that I've done is Bollywood. And I don't try to be a white man. And I think sometimes that is a hard place to be because I very much try to be who I am. And sometimes I think that is a, in some places, not in my current space, but in previous spaces, I think sometimes people will promote people of different backgrounds, but expect them to be and act like white men. And I am not a white man. That's just not who I am. And I'm not going to change that about myself. I cry. I cry a lot. (laughs) And I'm in a place where that is okay. And I'm not going to try to be someone I'm not. And I think that's where sometimes I do have to work harder. I do have to still, if I'm going to be myself, then I have to still like figure out how I can understand the politics, present and communicate in a way that's so effective. But I do have to find my path and I have to bring people along with me. And that is that is tough. But I've made a decision that I'm not negotiating on who I am. I love that you said that. And we do not want you to be a white man. I actually was listening, I forgot what episode, what podcast it was. And the question, the topic was, as a female, am I allowed to cry at work? Or is it bad? And the you need to be on there because they were like discussing it for an hour. And I, I, I love that you said that, you know, it's, it's a different time, a different era. And I think we all need to see our leaders not be perfect and quote unquote fail for lack of better terms. Do you ever feel a duty to have to highlight those? I know you probably are able to balance it out and publish what makes sense, but it must hit you a little close to home when you hear these stories. Absolutely, it does. And I I try to play whatever role I can in telling the stories the right way. And one of the biggest ways I try to do that is 
Indians, South Asians are not a monolith. We're all very different. There's so many groups between us. Like you see this in some of the the decisions around caste that are ma- being made in California. You see this among the Sikh community and what's happening, what happened in Canada and what's been happening to that community there. We are very complex. We're very different. We have Ramaswamy. We have, oh. we have Nikki Haley. <laughs> we have Kamala Harris. Sorry, I just sighed. Have, I just had to um, sigh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have, we have just like, we're really, really, really complicated. And I think I'm trying to make sure that we don't miss that. I also think some of the biggest stories we're about to face, I think the Indian election next year is a really, really, really big deal. We do have a responsibility to cover it. And I would hope that even if I wasn't South Asian, I would see that. And I do see a lot of coverage around it. But I think making sure we tell the story in the right way, with nuance, with clarity, with honesty, is the best we can do. And I find ways to bring those stories to light in a way that people can relate to and understand. I mean, one of my, the one story I wrote this year was on Batan on the new the Shah Rukh Khan love, movie. I was just about to ask um, you, have you written any South Asian stories? That story was it was such a big deal because it was Shah Rukh Khan, one of the biggest. Yep. I think your listeners may know who Shah Rukh Khan yep, yep. is, and you know he hadn't had a movie in several years. He hadn't had a hit even longer than that. He was going against Modi, and to me, that story was about the future of Bollywood. As you've been seeing this rise in in the fundamentalism in Bollywood. And there was a br- brilliant piece about this in The New Yorker. You see that tide happening. And is this this one movie is about Shah Rukh Khan's future. It's about Bollywood's future. It's about Muslims in India. It's about Modi's power. I'm not a writer, but that was just one moment where I just felt like I had to say something. And it goes back to, I believe that the culture you consume, the food you eat, your religious background, those are the things that often shape your worldview. And I think those are the topics that people maybe don't take seriously. I believe culture is so important. So we make it, you know, it's a big part of Vox. But I think I learned that from Bollywood because you know how influential Bollywood is. I still think that there is still strides to be made to understand Bollywood's major influence in Indian media, but I think it's worth taking seriously. And so I'm glad I and the little, the chances I get, I do try to bring that in. Did you dance when you watched the movie? Did you watch it in the theater? I did watch it in the theater. I, mean, I, know, got, I, up, didn't... I got up and danced. I'm just throwing it out there. You got up and danced. Okay, well, well see, I think I need to move where you are because in D.C., <laughs> it's not really the... I mean, I don't know how well you know Dallas. I don't even know the population of South Asians here. But there are many movie theaters dedicated just to Bollywood. And so one of my friends rented out the entire thing. And there was like 300 of us. We had like chat and masala chai. And it felt like if you didn't walk outside, we were in Bombay. You would have loved it. I guess, I guess I'm moving to Dallas. Yes. It's a step, yes. I, well, you if know, you come, I will rent the theater <laughs> for you just so you can dance. Okay. Yeah. I love it. Was it. Amazing. I, I screamed and clapped and, you know, with Rocky Rani and with Javon and, you know, Saw them on theaters, but I didn't. I just you like, know. we got to get you Next there. Time. That's a full experience. Once he's that's what once I need. he's dancing I need dancing it. in the aisles, totally. I want to quickly ask you about 
You know, there's so many South Asian now newsletters, magazines, podcasts covering South Asian news and people and just focusing on that. In your opinion, do you think this niche of newsletters and magazines, not whether they will last, but will it ever go mainstream in the U.S.? I hope they keep existing. I hope there's more and more of them. I consume a good amount of them. And I, I don't know if they'll go mainstream, but I, I also don't know where media is going. You know, is media all going to be niche topics? Is it going to stay? I think there's still going to be big publications, of course, but I don't know where things are going. But I just only hope that there's more and more of those because, I mean, the South Asian population is so influential, so huge and so complicated that I mean, I'm talking about Bollywood a lot, but a lot of South Asians don't even consume Bollywood. Right. You know? Shocking. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many industries. And I've been starting to get obsessed with those different movies from different regions too. It's so fun. But I hope I hope there's even more because I think that's absolutely needed. And I'm always going to advocate for more, yeah. more journalism. Yeah, I agreed. Okay, cheesy podcast question. You know, you've been editor-in-chief Three years now? Four years? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. So you must be thinking about the future. What would you like to do or see Vox do in the future or tackle that they that you guys haven't yet? I think I want to keep doubling down on providing the right type of information with clarity, with nuance to the audience I referred to earlier. I want to tell more stories about different people from different regions bring in different topics. I have a whole long list. Um, you know, I think religion is continues to be a really important story. I think labor does. If there's something to check out, I think our housing coverage by Rachel Cohen is just phenomenal. And I think we should, everyone should check it out. I want to do more. I want to reach more people and I want to, we do have, again, our mission. We do want to make the world better. We want to make people's lives better. And as long as I can keep doing that and growing that, I feel like I'm meeting the the goal that I set for myself when I was younger. You feel like you're at the right place, basically. Yeah. Right, right I'm place. Absolutely right. Right. Awesome. Quickly about growing up, because you grew up in Fremont, aka Little India, I believe. I've been there a few times and I'm like, there. I mean, I grew up in Houston with so many Indians, but Fremont was like, do you guys do Garba Ross outside, like on the streets every day? This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so... What was your relationship with being brown? I'm going to assume it was healthy, but being brown growing up. And who was Swati in high school? If I hung out with you in high school, who would you be? Did you date? Did you go to prom? Or were you like, you know, not allowed to do any of those things? Okay, so I actually went by Gori. Gori is my middle name. My mom named me Swati. My dad named me Gori. And they're very happily married and have a beautiful relationship. But People called me Gory, even though my real name was Swathi. So all the way through high school and then at college, when I started writing, I decided to go with Swathi. So I was Gory in high school, just a different person. And of course, especially when I was younger, I was very into Bollywood. I was <laughs> Sharapat's wife's name is Gory, so you can see the connections there. <laughs> okay, I'm, under, I'm understanding more and more. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I loved very family oriented. I grew up with my cousins. My brothers are my best friends. And I was very into the 
Indian culture, the South Asian culture, definitely South Asian culture. We grew up listening to Sufis. And if I had to pick a favorite artist, it is Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. I had a, I, I loved my childhood and really loved the environment that I grew up in. And it's, I think Fremont's gotten more South <laughs> yeah. Asian since I've left. I've, I've, um, I, I moved away in 2004, okay. but, um, Really, you know, I still have lifelong friends from that community and I, I loved it. And what was I like in high school? I mean, I think I was more just like, I don't know what's changed, but I still had my like a bunch of not just one friend group, but a bunch of little friend groups and different friends everywhere. And, you know, very social, very, I liked being out. I liked doing things. And I think that hasn't changed. So that was me in high school. And, um, you know, I, I I wanted to be in politics when I was younger. My mission was still the same, which is I believe that ignorance is the root of a lot of the problems in our society and they needed to, to be challenged by with knowledge. But I then thought it was maybe more political action rather than journalism. And so I was active in those spaces. But I mean, but, I, I assume yeah, Fremont, I was like, this girl must have had a healthy relationship to being Indian. Um, yeah, I love Never Have I Ever, but it's not not my experience. Yeah, right totally. <laughs> was, is, was that based in Fremont, too? No, that was in so, based in SoCal, but I just met a young, a young baby who was not a young boy. Yeah, totally. Do you have a fun prom story? I went with some of my best friends to prom. And one of them, um, Vani Mehta, shout out, um, <laughs> she's in Fremont. She still remains my best friend. That's so. awesome. I just yeah. love it because everyone's prom stories are very different. And I've heard the whole variety uh, from, you know, not going at all to getting dumped at the prom. And so I'm just like, I ended up going with a guy who I was set up with through a friend because no one ever asked me to anything ever. I never went to any dances. I think I have PTSDs, which is why it's one of my questions. And he ended up being married. Long story. But yeah, that was my prom story. So I'm like, I need to like understand everyone's prom stories that were. Wait, I'm sorry. You went to prom with someone who was married. He, technically, he was married to my friend's aunt for her green card. But I just, I just like, I don't like explaining that part. I just like saying he's married and then, you know, see right. what happens. But like how old was he? <laughs> he definitely was not in high school. I think he was okay. 20. I mean, back then when I was 17, I had just turned 17 the end of my senior year. He must have been 20, 21. But back then, that's a big difference. That's a big yeah, difference. Yeah, and he was like the six foot two white dude with a ponytail. And I remember my ba had come to visit from India and she only had like, she came once every 10 years. It's my Gujarati ba, right? She doesn't, she doesn't fuck around. And he came to pick me up at the door. And she basically was like, Asuche. Like, if she was like, what the <laughs> hell is happening here? I mean, the whole thing. And I, I think my parents are like, look, I don't think she's ever talked to a boy, so we're going to let her go. It's fine. But, anyways, it's right. fine. Lots of character building moments in my life. It's okay. <laughs> really? I mean, yeah, I could go on. No. Uh, Lavinia was with me, so she knows. Actually, I wonder. I don't, yeah, she know. I'm going to have to message her. After know, I don't this, know who she went with or if she went. I think she did. I can't remember. We were in two different groups then. I was with, with, with this crew who was like starting to go to raves and stuff. I think she knew all my friends too. Anyways, fast round. First thing that comes to your mind. Because you've mentioned this a few times, I got to ask. What is your all-time favorite Bollywood movie? Okay, I'm going to do this by category, so I apologize. <laughs> okay. 
Last 10 years, I will say it's Masan, which takes place where my dad is from, Varanasi. Okay. Biku is written by a woman. That screenplay is written by a woman. And you can tell with the characters. And I just think that Deepika Bardagan's character, amazing. So those are my two. And then the other one I'll do um, is Janabi Yaro with Nasruddin Shah. Just phenomenal and continues to be an absolute favorite. And I love Shah Rukh Khan, but I think I just love his like essence and feeling. I don't know if I can, the movies, when you watch them sometimes, you know. Gabi now maybe, but I'm going to stick with John and Pita Yaro as my favorite. And I'll add Guide with uh, Devanan. Nice. I, I feel like you had that like rehearsed in your head already. <laughs> I will add, I can add Umrah John, I can add Mira, I could Bakiza, but I'm going to pause. Okay. We'll talk more. We can have a whole podcast episode on yeah. that, I'm sure. That's the next one. <laughs> okay. That's about How do you want to be remembered by the people around you? Trying to break down the gatekeeping that we talked about, making sure that I can hopefully leave journalism a little better than I found it and help people find their paths to the careers that they want. Ultimate collaboration for 2024. I have a feeling, I feel like I know who you're going to say. <laughs> what, what do you think I'm going to say? I'm literally going to say Shah Rukh Khan, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can dream. Like Why not? That profile Why not? You can do it. Around the election, that's the dream. That should be my goal. I'm going to put Vox aside. I think that's a full-time job, and I got to focus on Fox. So You know what? You're his second glory. I feel like he would do it for you. He would. He would. Let me, let me, I'm making an appeal now. Shara Khan, kind of, for listening. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he's totally <laughs> listening to my podcast. <laughs> so yeah, <bad>. exactly. <laughs> Once he hears my voice right now, he's going to be like, is that a dying right. horse? Right. If it all goes awry, besides family and friends, what are your bare bones for happiness? It is my people. It is my brothers. It's my cousins. It's my best friends. I mean, I'm very, I'm someone who needs to talk things out whenever I have an issue. And it is those people who keep me very grounded. My family, my cousins, they they don't quite know my journalism world. And I'm so appreciative of yeah. that. So, and and, and my, my cousin's daughter, my nieces, all three of them, I, especially the three I'm, I'm very close to, they are, I just do a quick FaceTime and everything is better. So they, these are the people who keep me sane and together. I'm going to have to come to like your family reunions in Fremont. I feel like I can just blend it. It's like so much oh, fun. fun. My, it's the most, my brothers are, and my, my cousins, just the most fun you'll ever have. Uh, love and you know some of them. You can ask them. You have my email. Just send me the evites. Okay. I will uh, okay, I'll show up. I can, I can do Gerber Ross or whatever you guys need me to do. If you need to, if, okay. if you need to haze me to get in, let me know. <laughs> we're, we're the Larry Mindy family. So as long as you can dance to that, we're good. I can break it down. I used to break dance. Okay. Kind of. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, I could do like four or five moves. I mean, I'm older now, so, <laughs> you know, got to watch my yeah. back. But okay, I have tons more, but I will let you go. I know you are a busy woman. Swati, this was awesome. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I was so good. I, yeah, like I said, I feel like I already know you. So I'm like, I feel like I'll see you soon, even though I may not. So. Yeah, you will. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Genie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram, 
And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.